Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, what we learned from Russia's Victory Day parade and what Vladimir Putin had to say as Moscow presses ahead with its attack on Ukraine. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners on what to expect in the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Absolutely, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, Great to have you back on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, as I said, welcome back. Uh, Great notes. One on lessons uh, to learn, uh, which is uh, what you're always doing. And the other one was on Oshkosh's Investor Day and obviously what to expect in the week ahead. Uh, Let's start with the lessons learned. What were uh, some more immediate lessons learned, both from listening to uh, Kath Hicks, the Deputy Defense Secretary, Dr. Kath Hicks, uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary last week at the Reagan Institute, uh, but the Consumer Price Index and so many other things. Yeah, and I think, Vago, you know, the lessons learned are really the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine and, you know, what I think people ought to be thinking about taking away from that. And clearly, this is going to be something we don't know a lot about what's going on. Um, It's probably going to take months to really understand that. And um, you know, but it's obviously companies think through their strategic plans for this year, um, you know, into 23 and beyond. And then as budgets start to come together, I think there's some, some things that people ought to be thinking about. Um, I'll start kind of at the very high level because Max Boot wrote an essay in the Washington Post on um, May 4th that basically said, you know, oh boy, this, this is kind of favors the defense and you know, a lot of future offensive military action has to be called into question. And I'm leery of kind of drawing that conclusion. Um, You know, you could argue uh, equally that um, offensive weapons work pretty well against ISIS in, um, against Mosul in 2017. Azerbaijan did pretty well uh, in 2020 in an offensive operation and so, uh, you know, I, I think you really have to view each one of these contingencies or conflicts individually. I wouldn't say that javelins and in-laws and stingers have, have you know, just suddenly tipped the balance <clears throat> against any uh, possibility of future offensive military operation. Budgetarily and from what Kath Hicks uh, said, what did you think that was interesting? I mean, I thought what was interesting was she made the case... It's not about specific systems the Ukrainian needs, but Ukraine needs, but capabilities uh, that allow yeah. it to win. What were some of the things you picked up? Uh, because she did cover an enormous amount of ground in that discussion. Yeah, time. and I think you know that was at the Reagan Institute, and I, I think what was intriguing to me was obviously this whole debate that's going on in Congress about inflation. And I think she was very pointed, like, "Look, you know, it could be a problem for us. We'll let you know." No one knows exactly what uh, inflation is going to be in 2023, fiscal year 2023. <clears throat> um, Mike McCord, the comptroller of the Department of Defense, has noted that you know the DOD does not work off the same price indices as the Consumer Price Index. So, stating that uh, oh the CPI is eight percent, um, you know that's that's the you know delta between what the department is asking for and what. Inflation is, you know, that's the gap that's has going to have to be made up. I don't think that's really correct. 
Um, but I also think, you know, she made the point, like, just don't then throw, if, if you are going to give us money, just don't throw money at, at new programs or programs that you want to keep that are only going to compound our cost pressures going forward. And that may be another lesson. It's not a complete lesson, but I think it is something to keep in mind um, in, in the war that, you know, some of these older weapon systems, I mean, they're the Moskva is, could be a case in point. I, we don't know all the details on that, but that was a pretty old ship. And um, its ability of any um, older platform to survive <clears throat> against some of these more modern combat systems, I think, you know, we ought to be thinking twice about, about going down that road too. You know, I have written about this as well. And my case is a little bit like a sailor, always have a handhold, um, one hand for the ship, one hand for you we're letting go of too many handholds. So if it, this only works if they accelerate the fielding of that capability, but they're taking 10 years to field a frigate, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and, and that's, again, I mean, room for uh, potentially bad signaling, right? You don't want your Navy to be at its nadir, uh, the year of maximum danger, for example, which is 2027. Well, and, and Vago, that's just, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Um, I keep saying I want to write a book called The Artisans of Democracy um, instead of The Arsenal of Democracy, because I think if people have the idea that, oh, the U.S. has all this latent industrial capacity to just turn the switch on, um, it's it's not true. It's not not there. I mean, I saw Lockheed Martin's CEO saying, yeah, we're going to double javelin production, but it's going to take a couple of years, which I find appalling quite personally. Um I mean, if, if something is relatively simple as Javelin is taking that long to produce, uh, you know, it, it came up in the Air Force, uh, one of the Air Force oversight hearings, I think um, it may have been Senate Armed Services Committee, but, um, you know, Secretary Kendall talked about getting new E-7s in to replace the A-3 AWACS and how that was going to take four years. And I think people just kind of scratch their heads like, wait a second, you know, there are other countries that have this system already. Why does this just take so long? So I would agree. Um, I think maybe that's the problem is, you know, you've got you've to gotta start thinking about ways to get this newer kit in a lot faster than it's, than it's being produced, developed and produced. Uh, I uh, couldn't agree with you more. And uh, again, one of the most important lessons learned is speed, 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 uh, whether it's in Ukraine or the Falkland Islands lesson. Uh, Britain moved it with such staggering speed uh, that I think there are an enormous number of lessons to be learned uh, from that. Um, let's go to uh, Oshkosh's uh, Investor Day. Uh, why is it that you found the meeting in New York last week so interesting and so noteworthy? Well, I think what, what struck me about it, you know, normally at these meetings, you know, they'll have obviously the CEO, chairman, um, some of the sector heads, you know, kind of review their business units. And then the CFO will talk about the financial outlook. I thought what was unique about the Oshkosh event was they had their chief technology officer, you know, kind of speak about the same amount of time as the CFO and the CEO did. And it was really about how technology is enabling Oshkosh, um, what they see as a, an era of accelerated growth. And it, it really does kind of flow back through some of their military products. They have an EGLTV, for example, that they're, they're doing. They have you know, autonomous vehicles, um, uh, the robotic vehicles that they're also working on. So I think it's just, 
it was refreshing <clears throat> um, to hear kind of, hey, here's how we're looking at technology. Here's how we're applying it. And oh, by the way, these are these are applications that have value both in commercial and defense markets. So um, I thought it was it was a refreshing take on, you know, the movies and PowerPoint slides showing, you know, here are our products is kind of explaining a little bit more about what makes us different. Um, you know, we're not just another industrial company that builds trucks and vehicles. You know, we really are using technology uh, to make those products better, more innovative, more efficient. Uh, and uh, I think that's an uh, interesting message that they're transmitting, right? Because there are a lot of folks who take a look at this uh, commercial manufacturer who uh, is also an important defense contractor uh, and and looking at them as, as uh, uh you know, not having very bright prospects going forward, even if uh, uh, John uh, Bryant and the executive uh, leadership team certainly feel like they've got a lot to offer. Um, let me uh, ask you about in the next minute or so we've got left, what are the key things the audience should be paying attention to over the coming week and, and tuning into? Boy, Vago, you know, it's still uh, earnings, not earnings, hearing season. Um, we're kind of done with earnings season, but we are still in the midst of hearing season. So, uh, you know, I, these are always interesting. There are always little tidbits that come up on different programs, on perspectives. Um, but I, that, that's really kind of the, the primary focus this week. Um, I don't think there are a whole lot of things going on in the think tank world this week. Um, but boy, you know, I, I'm just looking at my calendar right now and, you know, oversight hearings on everything from worldwide threats on Tuesday uh, before Senate Armed Services Committee, Navy's back um, in, in budget spotlight, uh, Air Force, uh, missile defense, um, really the gamut on, on some of the defense issues in the FY23 budget. Byron, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and already looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. You got it, Fargo. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors, HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium. And joining us now is my good friend Sam Bendet uh, of the Russian team at the Center for Naval Analyses, who is also a visiting fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Sam is also one of the world's leading experts on unmanned systems, specifically Russians, uh, Russia's unmanned arsenal. He's also uh, one of uh, the nation's leading experts on the Russian military. Sam, Dabro Pajalovat and Shastlivovo Dinier Pavieda. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. Uh, it's always a pleasure having you back on, and uh, I was wishing you a happy Victory Day. Uh, Thank you. Which, uh, which is uh, today, uh, May 9, uh, a sacred day on this 77th anniversary of the uh, end of uh, World War II, uh, the defeat of Nazi Germany, uh, and an event which Vladimir Putin is uh, clearly trying to co-opt because that war was the war against Hitlerite aggression, uh, as Russia likes to say, whereas this one is, is a choice uh, against uh, its neighbors. Talk to me about what stood out in today's Victory Day uh, uh, parade. Uh, because obviously there is the messaging that Putin had, and I want to get to that in a, in a minute, but this is also always an opportunity for Russia to highlight some of the more important parts of its arsenal. From your standpoint, what were the key takeaways, Sam? Well, I think what was interesting is despite its roughly one and a half hour uh, length, it, it seemed relatively short. There was no aerial section in Moscow, meaning there was no aerial parade. It was canceled 
apparently due to bad weather over Moscow. But if you look at the video of the parade, uh, the weather was actually great. So it's unclear why Russians didn't want to show all of their air, all of the aircraft. Uh, there were fewer tanks. There were fewer armored vehicles. Um, the overall parade seemed rather short, even though it actually wasn't uh, time-wise. A lot of the military systems uh, were not really showcased. Um, it, which, which in and of itself is uh, fascinating, right? Because Russia always uses this as, as an opportunity uh, to uh, showcase uh, its arsenal. You know, in the Cold War, uh, I thought it was very funny that in that pageant, for example, uh, bombers would go into a giant circle. So the Soviet Union may not have had a lot of bombers, but the same bombers were going over in formation to transmit the signal of having a larger force uh, than it actually right. did. Um, we heard uh, some of the, you know, and, and obviously uh, it suggests that Russian forces are fully engaged, uh, right? And there might not be that many other airplanes to be flying around, especially in the wake of Russia's losses. What were some of the messaging from Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, there was an expectation that Putin was going to call up reserves, uh, expand the conflict, and, and we didn't hear that, although that doesn't really mean that he won't do it you know, or he isn't doing it even in private, right? What, what is it that he said? And what do you take away from it as a longtime observer of, of Russia and its capabilities and of Putin and what he says? Well, his speech was a continuation of Russia's fight against uh, the Nazi or neo-Nazi legacy. He talked about preserving Russia's historical values, which uh, he said are diluted by American and Western exceptionalism. He talked about the fight in the Donbass today, the right and the duty to honor the legacy of the fallen soldiers to take care of their families. Uh, he said that Russia will persevere in this fight. Um, there was nothing really surprising about the speech, meaning he didn't say anything that he had already said before. And uh, the expectation about mobilization was really kind of, uh, I would say it was an interesting point in the Western military analysis um, obviously, if Russian military conduct in Ukraine, um, if its military operation were to go better from Russia's standpoint, if this would uh, be completed by now, then the parade would have had even greater significance because Russia's war in Ukraine was always uh, presented in terms of denazification. Uh, and so uh, Ukraine almost assumed, Ukraine and their allies, such as the United States, almost assumed the, ro the role of Germany in Russia's view of its victory uh, on May 9th back then and its current war today, kind of fighting against the greater evil, which at that point was the Nazi Germany. Russia was fighting for survival. Today it is fighting for survival as a nation state, preserving its values against the neo-Nazi uh, force that is from Russia's standpoint viewed as um, sort of Ukraine, uh, um, which is goaded on by and urged on by the United States. He did not call for mobilization because this is a very significant step in Russia's approach to this war because uh, this would involve uh, a whole other conversation with the Russian people. Uh, it would have an absolutely enormous impact on Russia's economy, on Russia's society. And so Putin chose to commemorate the victory, the historical victory, over Nazi Germany, but he also tied Russia's war today with what Russia views as um, um, sort of the, the harbinger of um, things to come if Russia does not act, because he did say that Russia act, acted preemptively. 
he said that Kiev was considering um, its own attack. He mentioned something about nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Uh, he mentioned a couple of other things which to him seemed like Russia needed to launch a preemptive action against Ukraine in order to weaken this anti-Russian front, which was building up against the country. I also have to say that uh, this parade and May 9 is a uh, national celebration. And so Moscow isn't the only parade that was held. There were dozens of other parades held in large and small cities. Some weapons shown in Moscow were not shown elsewhere and weapons shown in smaller parades actually um, didn't make their way to Moscow as well. And so this is a national pageantry. It's a national day of commemoration. And the celebrations are to last throughout the country with many cities kind of holding their own parades. And some of those parades actually tend to be a lot more historical. Some cities actually hold historical parades. They actually showcase weapons and systems that Soviet Union used against the Germany, older tanks, armored vehicles, artillery, etc. In Moscow, there was only one T-34-85, uh, which is the later version of that World War II tank, which rolled out. Um, and, uh, and that was basically it. The rest of it were modern Russian weapons that were in development, are in development, and are in use. I also have to say that some of the parades, such as the parade on the Rostov-on-Don, in Russia's southern regions, actually showed military vehicles with a letter Z painted on them, indicating that they either rotated out of the Ukrainian operation or were about to be rotated into the Ukrainian operation right after the parade concludes. Uh, which is uh, which is very interesting, and I just want to say, you know, all all the claims uh, that Putin uh, and the Russian leadership uh, has been making have been disproven, uh, and. Um, you know, Ukraine did not have weapons labs. It wasn't developing right. weapons. It was not threatening Russia uh, at all. Uh, and in fact, right. uh, the the whole uh, Nazi idea doesn't really work uh, because uh, the the president of Ukraine is is Jewish, as are several uh, other uh, leaders uh, in uh, the Zelensky administration. Not that that matters at all uh, in terms. Um, of whether or not a country constitutes a threat. Uh, and certainly Ukraine was, did not constitute a threat uh, to uh, Russia. What's, what's next, uh, Sam? Uh, because we've uh, seen the Russians, originally the aim was to try to take the whole country. They were pushed back in Kiev. Uh, then it was uh, Donbass, uh, you know, Mariupol, a corridor to the south. But now we hear it's going to be the whole south of the country. Uh, you joined us uh, a couple of weeks ago and we had this conversation as well. Uh, and we've even heard of, of Transnistria, right, to go all the way to Moldova. And indeed, I think uh, Putin does want to turn Ukraine into a rump state, right? It, it doesn't, it's, I don't think it's going to be satisfied with just taking the east. From your standpoint, what's next uh, in this war? Uh, because the Chinese haven't been helping them, and the West is increasing sanctions. And indeed, uh, the Canadian uh, Prime Minister and the, and the American First Lady were in Kiev this weekend. Right now, Russia is seeking to consolidate its gains. It is seeking to present the fight in Mariupol as over and done with, so that Russia can claim consolidation over the entire Ukrainian south and east. Uh, it is seeking to create um, administrative and federal um, uh, regions out of these Territory. So it's unclear if um, most of Donbass will be sort of a pro-Russian independent state or if it will be included in some kind of a different federal entity that would encompass 
all of Ukrainian South and East. Yes, uh, Russian military indicated its desire for Transnistria. It's not clear if Russia has the capacity, if it has the military strength right now to go all the way West into Transnistria. Ukrainian military has not been defeated. Ukrainian military has been reorganized and reinvigorated with uh, Western weapons. They're very effective at targeting Russian military systems, Russian formations. Uh, this cannot be a Russian mass advance out of the east and the uh, south of the country. There are not enough forces. There are lots of casualties. And uh, Ukrainian defenders are very effective in taking advantage of Russians' concepts and tactics. Um, even Ukrainian Air Force, which uh, Russians claim uh, Russians claim was actually inoper inoperable and destroyed in the beginning of the war, is still operational. Ukrainians are still managing to fly their combat UAVs against Russian positions and conduct high-profile sorties, which are then displayed on social media. And so it's unclear if all of Russia's plans are going to come to fruition with respect to what they wanted to do. Uh, there was even um, evidence of uh, Ukrainian forces counterattacking around Kharkiv region. And so uh, what does victory look like for Russia? What does defeat look like for um, Russia? I think are subject of intense conversation in Kremlin right now from the standpoint of where they are right now, what they wanted to accomplish and what they ended up with. I think it's important to recognize that Russia's targeting of infrastructure nodes across Ukraine, rail links and highways, which supply Ukrainian forces um, from NATO countries is an important step uh, towards uh, trying to limit Russian step, trying to limit Ukrainian military capability. And if Russians persist and are successful in degrading Ukrainian infrastructure in the center and west of the country, infrastructure that helps Ukrainians get weapons and systems to the front, uh, then uh, Russians can claim uh, a sort of um, a different stage in this war where uh, they would be dealing with a somewhat weakened Ukrainian military that would have to rely on other sources for getting weapons and systems. But again, it's not clear what the end state looks like. Ukrainians are getting switchblade and other loitering munitions. They're again, they're flying drones. They're still effective in hitting the Russian forces. And the Russians seem to have consolidated around the east and south of the country, areas that are now under their control, areas where they can sort of claim and showcase some sort of um, fait accompli because Russian forces now control uh, specific and distinct regions of Ukraine. We've got about a minute left and I wanted to ask you about unmanned uh, capability. Obviously, uh, Ukraine is fielding considerable amounts of unmanned capability. Homemade uh, is using uh, commercial drones. And indeed, we've had questions about whether or not uh, Chinese-made digi drones uh, will operate only as long as Beijing wants you to operate, right? I mean, it may want to be collecting information from the Minneapolis Police Department. I have no idea, by the way, whether Minneapolis uh, uses digi drones, but I should say a metropolitan American police department, whereas we've seen evidence that uh, the Chinese may actually be uh, allowing Russia to operate digi drones and degrading the digi drones that are being used by uh, Ukrainian forces. Give us your sense. You, you mentioned uh, the uh, the switchblade uh, being one of them. Phoenix Ghost is another uh, platform uh, that's being deployed uh, there. Talk to us a little bit about the unmanned war, how it's developing, how it's advancing, because Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks said it right. The important thing is fielding the capability that 
the Ukrainians can use to defeat Russian forces, not specifically a named weapon system, whether it's a javelin or an NLAW, right? It's the capability that matters the most. From your standpoint, how is the unmanned war changing, evolving, and what are the lessons you're drawing from them on a weekly basis? Well, this war has been yet another evidence that unmanned aerial systems are an inseparable and absolutely necessary part of any conflict with uh, all sides fielding their own intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities. And if, um, if a specific military unit, specific military force can field military grade UAVs because they're not available or, or because they were lost or because they were not acquired or procured, then these military forces can actually field commercial UAVs, and this is what we're seeing in Ukraine on a very large scale, probably on the scale larger than in previous conflicts across the Middle East. And of course, this places DJI Mavic drones made by China front and center in this conflict with Ukrainians and Russians operating them. Russian allied forces from the Donbass, as well as its uh, Rosgvardia troops from Chechnya, have been especially vocal in public and showcasing their use of DJI Mavic drones. In fact, just today there was a video released by Russian Izvestia online publication about a fighter from Donetsk that uses Mavic drone for ISR and target acquisition, uh, while at the same time acknowledging that Ukrainian electronic warfare is actually a big danger to these commercial drones. The use of DJI has been so prolific and so widespread that China actually pulled the plug on official, uh, on official sales of that drone, both in Russia and Ukraine. So this is a recent development. And so this is an acknowledgement by the Chinese company that, yes, while this drone can be operated uh, by civilians and by and, and for civilian um, uh, purposes, it is actually a terrific, cheap, simple to use, easy to operate weapon for any military force, for any military reason, for any military mission. And this once again underscores the fact that in this type of war, where all sides can have persistent eyes in the skies, where they can monitor what is happening on the ground with great detail, then uh, hiding your force, positioning your force, maneuvering your force, repositioning the force becomes more and more difficult because nothing essentially escapes the observation of these small, uh, hard-to-spot UAVs unless unless a force puts up a very effective electronic warfare and counter uh, UAV um, measures in place. And we've seen Russia actually deploy some of those capabilities, but not all the time and not everywhere, which is why, for example, there are videos of Ukrainian DJI drones sneaking up in Russian positions and dropping bombs on them directly on, on the turrets of armored vehicles and tanks, much like we've seen in Syria, much like we've seen in Libya from um, from non-state actors using the same drones in the same type of concepts and operations. And so military forces like United States, NATO, and of course, China, Russia, and others post-Ukraine conflict have to come up with different concepts and weapon and, and tactics uh, in trying to essentially disguise your, uh, your force uh, from such persistent observation by not just military, but also civilian UAVs, which are proliferating rapidly. And it, even if China actually pulled the plug on official sales of, a, of its drones in Russia and Ukraine, uh, these drones are still uh, easy to acquire through other means. And so it's, it's not likely that the flow of these UAVs is going to stop 
either to the Russians or to the Ukrainians. Let me ask you one last question. There has been a lot of discussion uh, about uh, the uh, American officials uh, boasting uh, that it was U.S. intelligence that helped uh, kill uh, uh, U.S. intelligence provided to Ukraine that helped kill uh, Russian generals and sink uh, the Moskva. Other military officials have said, look, you know, and the administration has said the United States just provided this information. What they do with the intelligence is up to them. Uh, And uh, indeed, the folks are very clear that President Biden isn't happy about those leaks on the American side because it could push Putin to respond somehow from from your and and um, other military leaders have said, look, the Ukrainians are very, very uh, knowledgeable about Russian TTPs, communication networks. They, they, they're using the intelligence to target guys they know how to target. Right. From your standpoint, do these intelligence disclosures push Putin to act against the Western alliance, or is that an over-exaggerated danger? And how are the Ukrainians using the intelligence they're getting? How much of this is their own initiative, and how much of this is our intelligence, if you can answer that? Well, I'll answer the first part. I think how Putin responds to such claims, how Putin responds to such evidence and proof of American assistance to Ukraine is really uh, how he would probably stage the second uh, or the follow-on part of this conflict. Now that Russia has consolidated more or less its hold on the east and south of Ukraine, how he would and his military would respond in kind, if at all, or um, if there would be other countermeasures taken by the Russian government if such uh, claims are actually verified. I mean, that's a very good question. We we keep discussing what what's next for the Russian military in Ukraine. It did not accomplish its initial mission. We are way past the two-month mark in this war. Uh, some battle lines have sort of consolidated and, and become more or less static. Other battle lines are very fluid. Uh, Russia has failed in some parts of its military mission and it was able to succeed in others. And so this overt assistance to the Ukrainians would be viewed by uh, Moscow as yet another proof that Ukraine, from Russia's standpoint, is used as a staging area for a larger Western action, larger Western attack against Russia, against Russian history, against Russian values. And so this is what we have to watch for. How does Russia respond to these claims within the framework of its own views of the war that I mentioned earlier? that Ukraine and America's allies in Eastern Europe are used against Russia, against Russia as a country, against Russia as a nation state. Uh, and so this is something we have, to, uh, we have to watch for. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us uh, and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. 
Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.